So we have had for many years um, a really wonderful relationship with the church in Heathfield. There's people that have gone from here to Heathfield and people that have come from Heathfield to here and so on and back and forth. And um, it's a real privilege to have Marcellus and Hannah and the family here today. Um, and I, I don't know Marcellus well. Clive knows him very well. My dealings or my hellos to Marcellus have been in the queue at Costa with Clive when I've been there with, with Rich or people from here. But from what I do know about Marcellus, he is a man who worships God with his whole heart and who gets before God every day and says, I lay my burdens down before my king and I will worship him forever. And that's pretty much all I know about him, but that's all I need to know about him. So let's please welcome Marcellus, who's ready to go. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wow. Eastbourne, you are actually the Sunshine Coast, aren't you? <laughs> Especially this morning. It's about 100 degrees in this room, isn't it? That is uh, English people for you all over, isn't it? We've been moaning about the cold wind for the last two months. It's now got hot, and we're going to moan about that, aren't we? So, as uh, Martin said, uh, I'm sort of Clive's nephew by marriage. That's why we don't look very similar. So I, um, my name's Marcellus, and I grew up in London. Uh, I moved to Heathfield when I was 11, where I met and married my wife, Hannah, who was basically my childhood sweetheart. We've been married for 15 years, uh, and we have three children. There should be a photo coming up of us. And after uni, I became a police officer in the Metropolitan Police. I did that for seven years, and now I work for the church in Heathfield full-time. And Clive asked me to preach. I'm going to put my Bible on the floor because it's too big. Uh, Clive asked me to preach, and I thought, oh, yeah, that would be, be nice. That would be a great opportunity. And then I remembered that, actually, I don't really like your building. <laughs> so... <laughs> I like, love you guys. You guys seem fantastic. Um, but your building, your building has been a place of some personally difficult moments for me. Last year, I stood on the stage as the manager of Heathfield and Horham Under-11s football team. We're called the Freestylers. You've almost certainly heard of us. I'm seeing lots of recognition from all over the place. And uh, what had happened over that year, I had single-handedly taken the Freestylers team from a team that lost every single week, this is no exaggeration, every single week, every single week, to a team that actually climbed two leagues in one season and were putting other teams to the sword left and right. And what we, what we do as a football club is we have our celebration, our annual awards evening, or afternoon, here. So I am sat there with a huge level of expectation. Who is going to be manager of the year? Who should be manager of the year? I'm sat there thinking this is going to be like that moment in Gladiator where he stands there and the petals come down from the top and finally they give you the massive, massive Massive, like, gold football, uh, World Cup-esque trophy. Hand it for you, and they're shouting and screaming. That's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. So I'm sat there. I'm actually sat about there. I'm holding, I'm holding Hannah's hands. It's a bit like the Oscars. You know, you're thinking, here we go, here we go, here we go. Instead, I clap politely as Chris, I won't say his surname, Chris 
takes manager of the year 2023 away from me in one of the most outrageous miscarriages of justice <laughs> ever seen. There I am, clapping politely, in my heart, thinking, Lord, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> A few months later, I stood on this exact same stage and I spoke at my daughter's funeral. So our youngest, Jemima, was eight years old. She loved life. She loved Star Wars and her clothes and her friends. And she'd never been to hospital in her life. And whilst me and Hannah were visiting a church in Turkey, she had a severe asthma attack and died on the 11th of November. And we buried her on the 2nd of December in Old Heathfield Church. And you guys really kindly let us hold uh, the funeral here. And life is sometimes like that, isn't it? One day you're thinking, why am I not manager of the year 2023? And the next you're sitting in the devastated ruins of your life, facing the, the reality that life will never be the same again. And actually, as you guys sort of demonstrated by you all coming to the front, tragedy is not unusual. The Bible is a story, it is a book for grown-ups. It's a story of men and women who face difficulty, tragedy and death, and they do it with a God who stands by them, a God who draws near to the brokenhearted. What I want to do this morning is I, I want to talk to you about a guy called Nehemiah. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah is a guy who knows what it is to walk in tragedy and death and hang on to God. Now, Nehemiah is a Jew. He's living in Babylon. And he's living in Babylon because the Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, has been invaded by the, I love a map, has been invaded by the Babylonian army. And Jerusalem has been completely destroyed. Every bit of it has been completely destroyed. And what's more, what's happened is the Babylonians, and they did this everywhere across the ancient world, everywhere they conquered, they just take away all the elite. They take away all of the really smart guys, all the guys with skill, all the guys with authority, anyone with leadership, they drag them back to Babylon and they say, actually, you are going to work for us, you're going to work for the empire. And that is where Nehemiah finds himself. So we've got this guy called Nehemiah, he's been dragged, or his, grandpa his grandparents or his parents have been dragged into slavery in Babylon, and they are working for the Babylonians. But Nehemiah, I think he's smart, I think he's capable, I think he's clever, and he's done good. He's basically climbed the Babylonian ladder, and he's found himself as cupbearer to the king of Babylon. So Nehemiah basically has everything the world could offer. He is powerful, he is secure, he is at the center of the greatest empire on earth, and he is at the center of the greatest city on earth. If this guy had an Instagram account, you would want his life. You know those Instagram accounts that you look at and everything seems perfect? Nehemiah had that sort of Instagram account. It was an, it was an Instagram account that, where everything seemed to be going very, very well. He's in, the, he's in the center, the very cradle of civilization. Everything is going perfectly for him. 
Like I said, one day you're up for manager of the year 2023, and, next, and the next day, life comes and punches you in the throat. So this is the beginning of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1, bang at the beginning. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back, in, are back in the province and are in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So one day you're cupbearer before the king, everything's going up to the right, and then suddenly you hear the wall around Jerusalem is broken down, the city of God's people, and God's people are in great trouble and distress. And it cuts Nehemiah to the very core. Life comes, he's there cupbearing for the king, and life comes and punches him in the throat. And Nehemiah is like, it's like he's woken up from a sleep of comfort. He must have known about Jerusalem. It must have been somewhere in the back of his mind. Perhaps when his family got together in Babylon, when the old men got together around the fire in the evening, they talk about Jerusalem. They talk about Israel. They talk about God's plan to bless a nation, to bless a city, and through that, bless the nations of the world. And perhaps the old men cried tears of what could have been. But it's all in the back of Nehemiah's mind. Nehemiah's busy, isn't he? He's got a career. He's got pressures at work. He's got pressures at home. And actually, the things of God seem far away and distant, don't they? And then suddenly, and then suddenly, life comes and punches Nehemiah in the throat. And he wakes up and he thinks, What am I doing? What am I doing here? And I, I would always remember being in that flat in Turkey with our friends. We were eating dinner and we got a phone call. I always remember Hannah's dad's exact, exact words. He said, we have a real medical emergency. I always remember calling my dad, 40 years old, I'm calling my dad, I'm just saying, dad, I'm scared, dad. I'm scared. And you see, in those moments, in those moments, you see yourself in perspective. You wake up to who you are. I couldn't, I couldn't change the situation. I couldn't work harder. I couldn't work smarter. The feeling was, you know in that film Titanic, it felt like this. You know, when you know when the boat hits the iceberg and there's a moment where the boat just goes zoom. And it goes, and what they've been standing on, they've been standing on this deck. And it, the deck just becomes a cliff and their feet slide away from under them. All the things that I'd built my life on, all the things that I'd assumed were good, all the things that I'd assumed were okay, were gone. And in that moment, I had nothing and we had nothing to hold on to. You see yourself in that moment, perspective. You see yourself for who you are. 
that guy, the Irish guy, a finite being with a limited number of days, limited power and limited ability. And you know what? That comes as a massive shock because we live in a world that constantly assures us that we're going to live forever, constantly assures us if we just try harder, if we just, if we just act a bit smarter, if we take care of our bodies for enough time, if we look at our diets enough, if we only eat certain things at certain times, we will live forever. But in that moment, when the deck slides away from you, you are gifted, gifted, with a perspective that in the face of death, our ultimate enemy, actually, it doesn't matter how hard you try, or smart, or organized, or disciplined you are, the only thing you have is God. In that moment, the only thing we had with God was God. And our friends who aren't Christians would come and they'd say things to us. They'd try and help us and they'd say it out of the kindness of their hearts. And actually, it didn't help. So they'd say things like, what was it? When loved, when robins are near, sorry, when robins are near, loved ones are near. What's that go? Does anyone know that? Well, when robins appear, loved ones are near. And you'd be talking to people and they'd say things like that. When robins appear, loved ones are near. And you think, well, so do you believe in reincarnation? Is that what you're su- suggesting to me? Which they weren't at all. They were secular atheists. Uh, but they didn't have anything to say. In that moment when death comes storming into your life, when you face the realities of eternity, the only hand that you can hold on to is Jesus. Because he's the only one who walks through death into life. And he's the only one that can invite us into life. So in that moment where the ship, where you're the ship of your life, and it will happen to each and every one of you, sorry, terrible news, but it will happen to each and every one of you, when the ship of your life goes like that, instead of like that, there is only one hand that will reach through, there is only one hand that you can rely on. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, I only trust in Jesus' name. And so what happens is the same thing. Oh, thank you. The same thing, <laughs> the same, the same thing happens to Nehemiah. He gets perspective. Suddenly Nehemiah understands who he is. He understands that actually he's just a man with a flash job. And so what Nehemiah does and what we all should do is when we come before a God who's eternal and we realize that we're infinite is we should get on our knees. So Nehemiah, he prays. He does this beautiful prayer. Listen to it. It says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps, keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Nehemiah, he gets perspective and he comes humbly and he appeals to the God of heaven. He confesses, he says, actually, I'm not good. I'm not right. I'm not perfect. He refers to himself again and again throughout that prayer. He says, I am your servant. I am your servant. And he appeals to God's goodness. He says, God, because you are so good, would you hear my prayer? 
Because you are so kind, because you are so merciful, would you listen to me, a mere man? I wonder, I wonder, do, do we find prayer so difficult because we spend most of our lives acting like we are God? In that moment of perspective, Nehemiah did the only thing that he could do. He bent his knee. But Nehemiah could have gone another way. Nehemiah could have accused God. He could have said to God, how on earth have you let this happen? Thought you were meant to be good. Thought you were meant to be in control. I don't know. I don't know if Nehemiah had all the answers. I don't know if he felt satisfied. In our situation, there's loads of answers that I just, we just don't have. I don't, I don't understand plenty of stuff to do with this. I don't understand, and I wrestle with it. And I think I probably won't ever fully understand. But I also don't understand how our TV works. Like, probably the, guy, the two guys at the back, they're the sort of people that understand how televisions work, right? But I don't understand how televisions work. And yet I switch it on every day. When it breaks, I will literally just go to the shops and I will buy a new one. So I think the chances of me understanding an infinite and perfect God and the plan that he is going to work out through, through life and through salvation seems slim. It seems slim. It seems like I'm probably not going to understand every single moment of it. But what I do know is it matters what I focus on. So you guys come up and you said about all the things that are going on in your life, but you have a choice of what you focus on. So the things that I do know, I know that I will see Jemima again because of God and because of Jesus and because of the cross. I know that God loves me because of the cross. I know that God works all things together for God, for good. How? In what way? How's that going to totally pan out in the scheme of eternity? Now then, I don't know. But I can either choose to trust and lean into God in the face of death, pain and destruction, or I can face these things and face them I will on my own. So I suppose what I'm saying is that me and Hannah have some perspective in life that a lot of people don't have. Which sounds a bit boastful, but believe me, if I had the option of not having that perspective and having an hour of Jemima, you can have my perspective. But all we have is perspective. And what, what, what we've learned in these moments, what we've learned walking through the valley of the shadow of death, is that stuff that used to really matter, doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. And I guess Nehemiah is the same. I guess until he hears about the walls of Jerusalem being down, until he hears about the people of God being in distress, actually he's probably thinking about the same things as us. He's probably thinking about his pleasure. He's probably thinking about his hobbies. He's probably thinking about his career and what cup he's going to bear next. So when Nehemiah gets punched in the throat by life, when Nehemiah hears what's going on in Jerusalem, he gets perspective not only on himself, but he gets perspective on his life. Perspective on his life, on the day-to-day. -day. 
The God of eternity or eternity comes crashing in and suddenly he gets a perspective on what he does Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. You see, there are some things I regret in my life. Some of them are actual bad things, bad things I did, but a lot of it is just frankly rubbish. I regret flicking through, your through my phone. I regret watching rubbish TV. I regret wasting my time with various things. I think we've all been on down a certain Instagram rabbit hole, haven't we? Where you're like, I've spent two hours watching videos of a guy. There's a guy on Instagram who runs on all fours. And you can spend a long time watching him run on all fours. So you can, you can have that sort of regret. But I'll tell you what I don't regret. I don't regret a single time we prayed with our children at breakfast. And I'm not saying that this was like being in the Sistine Chapel. I'm not saying it was a beautiful moment and you could hear angels singing and one of the kids then brought a psalm. You know, often we'd... We often, that's not that funny. A child could bring a psalm, it's fine. Often we, would, often we would sandwich our prayers with an argument one side and an argument the other side. They weren't like beautiful moments, but I don't regret a single one of them. I don't regret any of the times that we opened the Bible together. I don't regret a single time we did that, ever, once. And again, they weren't always like this perfect Tim Keller moment where we're going through, where we're expounding scripture beautifully. Often they're like, oh, uh, 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 and we're kicking each other under the table. That's me, not the kids. Uh, and they're not these wonderful, beautiful moments, but I don't regret a single one of them. I don't regret a single time that I held Jemima's hand and told her that God loved her. I don't regret a single time that happened. I don't regret taking her to church every single week, sometimes when, like this lady who came up the front, sometimes when you don't feel like it. I don't regret bringing her every single week and making her stand next to me while I stuck my hands in the air and sang off key loudly in her ear. I don't regret a single moment of those things. Because when you stand before God, when you stand before death and destruction, you see what really matters what really matters in your life. And those are the eternal things. Those are the things of God. Those are the things of God. And sometimes, the Bible tells us that God puts treasure in earthenware, earthen jars, clay jars. So sometimes the church doesn't look that great, does it? Sometimes it's a slightly overweight guy at the front, sweating. It doesn't look like the eternal glory of God. But it is. It's eternal things. It's eternal things. Things that matter. So what matters in life, what matters in life is what God wants you to do. What God, want, who God says you are. That's what matters. What God says he wants you to build. Because everything else in a hundred years will be dust and ashes. Dust and ashes. There's no one... They're not going to remember my name in a hundred years. They're not going to remember my name in a hundred years. And yet my Instagram profile tells me that I'm going to live for eternity. What matters, what matters is what God wants us to do. What matters is the kingdom of God. Jesus is always telling stories about this in the Gospels. All the time. 
the pearl of great price, the guy with the barns, the lost coin, the wise and foolish builders. Jesus talks constantly about the kingdom of God. He says, don't, he's basically just saying, don't let this life be all that you think about. Don't let what's in front of your eyes be the only thing that consumes you. Don't let your career consume you. Don't let your pleasure and your hobbies consume you. Don't even let your family consume you. Because what matters is what God wants you to do and who God says you are and what God wants you to build. Don't let the kingdom of this world be your obsession. Be obsessed with the kingdom of God because everything else is dust and ashes. And that's what happens to Nehemiah. He gets perspective about who he is and he gets perspective about life. About life. How life works in the mundane and the everyday. And then he does something about it. So despite being the man, he is the man, isn't he? He's the cupbearer to the king. Despite being the man, despite living in the city, despite living in the empire, he throws it all away to pursue what is eternal rather than what is temporary. He leaves the city of Babylon to go to the city of God. So he prays, he goes into the king, and the king says with one wave of his hand, the king, the king gives him the finances, the king gives him the permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So we're, we're jumping through the chapters now. So Nehemiah, beginning, uh, beginning of chapter 2, goes to Jerusalem, he rides around the city, he examines the walls, he rallies the people, gives this lovely little speech in chapter 2, verse 17. He says... You see, the, you see the trouble we are in. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Which is what every preacher wants ever, isn't it? Look at the state of things. Let's build and the people say, Come on then, let's begin this good work. And so we then hit chapter 3 of Nehemiah, which is an incredibly, incredibly beautiful chapter. Because what happens is they work, all the people work together to build a wall around Jerusalem. And it is incredibly beautiful. Now, I'm not, I'm not massively, massively into walls. It's not, it's not a personal obsession of mine. You won't find me uh, part of some sort of uh, wall appreciation group. I, I'm, not, I'm not really massive about mortar or trowels. Or, I haven't got like 44 trowels at home or anything like that. In fact, I'm possibly the worst person at DIY ever to walk the face of the earth. So you could think, so Marcellus, what's so incredibly beautiful about Nehemiah 3? Do we, do, am, am I suggesting that we all need to work all need to, to uh, um, work on our brick, brush up on our brick working skills. I'm sure some of you have them. And book some flights to Israel, get out to Israel, start building the wall around Jerusalem. Is that what I'm suggesting? No. God 
has a far greater plan than simply rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. But he is still building. Jesus tells us what in Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, I will build my church. The very gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. God's purpose on the earth is to build his church. And he wants you to be involved. In fact, it's more than that. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, he says that actually not only are you invited to help build the church, but actually you're invited to be part of the building. Peter says that Jesus is the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is building his church. And it's beautiful because he invites you, all of you, to be part of something that isn't just dust and ashes. He invites you to be part of something that is eternal. God gives us a purpose outside of ourselves that has a meaning that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. And so I love chapter 3 of Nehemiah because really chapter 3 of Nehemiah is a picture of God building the church. And in this picture, everyone gets involved. Everyone so I'm going, to read you a few, I'm going to read you a few sections of it, but what I'm going to do, because I hate DIY, and because I'm terrible at DIY, is I'm going to skip the details. I'm just going to skip the bits where they say, oh yeah, they put this bit here and they put that there. There are men, aren't there, in the world that can do DIY, and there are men, that are, lots of my friends seem to be able to do it. They, see, they come around and say, what do you want to do? Men do this, don't they? What you want to do, mate, what you want to do is you want to, you want to dig down there two metres, then you want to go back a little bit, they never say a little bit, then you want to go back one metre, then you want to do this, then you want to do that. I've literally just glazed. The first time they said you've got to dig down two metres, I'm like, well, I can probably dig down two metres, but I've glazed on, on all of the detail. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump through the detail because we're going to talk about the guys. So verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib. The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Verse 2, the men of Jericho built the, ad the adjoining section and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. Verse 3, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasina. The next section was, re re was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervision. So chapter 3 goes through, and it goes through basically everyone. And then we hit this verse 5, and it says that the nobles of Tekoa refuse to put their shoulders to the work. There's always one, isn't there? Like there is always one. Every job you've ever had, there's always one, isn't there? There's the noble of Tekoa who's always out the back smoking. Like, how, how, many time, how many cigarettes can you have in one eight-hour shift? This is the nobles of Tekoa. 
Imagine these guys wandering around heaven. Who are they? Oh, they're the neighbors of Tekoa. <laughs> didn't put their shoulders to the work. They didn't put their shoulders to the work. When the God of heaven said, I want you to rebuild, I want you to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, when the God of heaven said, I want you to do this, they didn't put their shoulders to the work. What wimps. You know, they were probably too busy, they were probably too important, they were probably too afraid. Oh, what wimps. Let's not be the nobles of Tekoa. Honestly, my wife said to me, so we don't know if you know, we've lost our, we lost our daughter and we were driving to a prayer meeting and she said, oh, I don't feel like going. Of course you don't feel like going. We've lost our daughter. That's very reasonable. But I guess, quote, I guess sometimes we just have to do things that we don't want to. Amen. Don't let's be the nobles of Tekoa. I'm reading through Luke in my own time. And the stories, the Gospels are full of, full of warnings. Jesus says again and again, against doing nothing. Don't let's do nothing. Don't let's get really good at paddleboarding. I know, I know lots of people in East Form paddleboard. It does look lovely. I'm not saying you should never paddleboard. But don't let's get really, don't let's, don't let's do that at the expense of everything else. Don't let's set up an Instagram account where you run on all fours. <laughs> You're going to stand before Jesus. So what have you done with the time I gave you? What have you done with the gifts that I gave you? Oh, I've learned to run on all fours. Ah, can you imagine? The nobles of Tekoa. They're nobles. They probably were gifted. They were probably educated. They were probably schooled in leadership. And yet they did not put their shoulder to the work. God loves a trier. God loves a trier. It's not a Bible verse, but God loves a trier. And that's what you see in Nehemiah 3. You see a load of guys and a load of girls just have a go. The Jishana, verse 6, the Jishana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pasia, and Meshulam, son of Besodia. Next to them, repairs were made by the men from, from Gibeon of Meronoth. Verse 8, Uzil, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Rephanes, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section, Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumapa, made repairs opposite his house. Love that. Jediah, son of Harumpa. Not saying that right, am I? I love the mundane detail of this. Jediah repaired the section outside the front of his house. He got up and he thought, what bit should I do? He's... He's not the guy who's like, I've had a prophetic vision, I've had a prophetic dream, God is calling me here, he wants me to do this. Jediah gets out of his house on a Monday morning and he thinks, well, I've got to do somewhere. <laughs> Bang. He just, gets on, he just gets on with it. I love, I love this. I love this. Because the church is built on men and women like Jediah, who just come out of their house and think, actually, I could tell my neighbour about Jesus. Yeah, what about the person just in front of me? I don't, need to, I don't need to be involved in the fish gate. 
Fishgate sounds complex and flash. I'm just going to do the bit of wall in front of me. The church is built on men and women like Jediah. So my daughter Jemima, she died when she was only eight. So she didn't sit in a lot of sermons. She never once listened to a Tim Keller sermon, ever, ever. She's shocking, isn't it? Never once. She wasn't a big fan of sermons, even my sermons, which is outrageous, isn't it? What she did do, what she did do was she sat in Sunday school. She sat in Sunday school and she was taught by a load of Jesus-loving Jediahs, people that you will never, ever hear of, people that will never stand on the stage. And they had eternal significance in my daughter's life. They had eternal significance. It's lovely, isn't it? So the month, the month, a couple of months before Jemima died, and I do thank God for this, a couple of months before Jemima died, she chose to give her life to Jesus, and she chose, she chose to be baptised. In my immense wisdom, I said, don't get baptised, wait a bit. Don't get baptised, wait a bit. The other elders were like, oh no, if she wants to get baptised, let her get baptised. There, there, there she is, getting baptised. She didn't sit in a lot of sermons. She didn't read a lot of theology, but a load of Jediahs, a load of people who saw a need out the front of their house and built the wall, taught her about Jesus, his love. They probably cut out 99 sheep on their own at home. They probably, they probably on the Saturday night before Sunday school in the morning, they probably sat there and picked all of the cotton wool off of their fingers, thinking, what am I doing? They probably sang some silly songs with one of the kids sticking his finger up his nose in the, th- in the middle of it. They probably thought, what is the point of this? Treasure in jars of clay has eternal, eternal significance. I said, we got all of our, we got all of our children's workers together, and we just said, thank you, thank you. Thank you, dull things. Like someone's put out the chairs, haven't they? Like the guys in the car park. Dull, yeah, just put your car there, mate. I mean, I'm probably a painful person to put into a car parking space. I'm terrible. Uh, The guy's doing that. Guy on the camera at the back. Guy doing the PowerPoint presentation. Guy putting out the chair. Giving you money. Eternal, eternal significance. Chapter goes on and on. The dung gate was repaired by Machilijah, son of Rechab. The fountain gate was repaired, p- repaired by Shalon, son of Koya Hose. And, you know, you might feel like, oh, I just, I don't know what to do. I just can't. I implore you, try. God loves a trier. You know, that's what faith is. Let's have a go. Let's see what might happen. God's put something on your heart? Great. God's not put something on your heart. Read your Bible, Jediah it. Go out your house and tell someone about Jesus. The, you, I, love, I love the way this list starts as well. Because it starts with uh, Eliashub, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, 
building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. Elishib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and built the sheep gates. Have we got any builders in the house? Must have a builder. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you two look like builders, don't you? Uh, so, so when you're, when you're looking... I'm not looking for feedback here. This is just me talking, using you, rather than looking for feedback. When you're looking, when you're looking for people to work on your building site, are you looking for the high priest and his fellow priests? <laughs> Do they sound like the guys that you think, God, these boys are going to put in a shift, don't they? <laughs> like, these are going to be the ones, they're going to be the they, they probably know what they're doing. This is what I love about this. This is people having a go. So I reckon... I reckon, what is it? The sheep gate. The sheep gate is my sort of gate. It's the high priest. The high priest and his mates are having a go. This is Clive and Ollie having a go. Now, Clive, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? He knows how to order you a very nice glass of white wine in the restaurant, right? (laughs) He'll chuck a few Spanish words or Italian words in, right? (laughs) But (laughs) you know him, don't you? Ollie, footwear, alone. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I'm the same. I'm the same. These guys, their gate is wonky, isn't it? You know, you know that things that blokes do, where they come up and they have a look at what you've done, and they're like, right, right, I bet builders, this is builders' pet, pet hates. My brother-in-laws are both builders. So they're pet hates. They come round, some DIYers had a go. Had a go. My brother-in-laws dug my patio. Oh, sorry, built my patio. I dug it because I was going to help. Because actually, I can do physical things, just not very well, it turns out. So I dig this big hole for the footings for the patio. Know some words, footings, things like that, because I've heard them say it. It'll be fine. Dig this big hole. They turn up. They're like, yeah, good. Yeah, good. So it turns out that I've dug a big hole around the edge of where a big hole needs to be, instead of where the big hole needs to be. So they spend the first day filling in my big hole and building their own big hole. And that, that I reckon is what the sheep gate's like. I reckon all the builders are wandering around looking at the priest sheep gate like, right, really, okay, great. But that, that is the beauty of Nehemiah 3. That is the beauty of these guys. They have a go. They have a go. It frustrates me in church when I ask people to, to do things and they say, oh, I've not done that before. I'm like, yes, I was in the Metropolitan Police for seven years. It didn't particularly prepare me for leading prayer meetings. There's quite a low number of prayer meetings you, leave, you lead in the police. It doesn't particularly help you with Bible study or general pastoral stuff, actually. <laughs> The, the thing is, these guys had a go. They had a go. Never led a prayer meeting, give it a go. Never prayed for someone on your street, give it a go. Let's not be timid. That's what I love about this. They're not waiting for an expert to turn up. They're not waiting for someone who's going to take, take the reins and show them exactly what to do. You must have heard of these guys, obviously. As I read through that list, you must have been aware of uh, Malkijah, son of Rechab, Jediah, son of Harumpa. Surely you've heard of Hananiah, the perfume maker. Hananiah, the perfume maker, of course. That's why all your kids are called Hananiah, isn't it? 
These guys are absolute nobodies. They're absolute nobodies. Hananiah, the perfume maker. I don't want to pile in on Hananiah, the perfume maker. But if he was a really good perfume maker, where would he be? Babylon. <laughs> Babylon. He'd be with all the, they would have taken him from Jerusalem and he'd been in Babylon making perfume. This guy's not even a great, Hananiah is not even a great perfume maker. But he has a go. He has a go. So when I was preparing this, I just, I felt like the Spirit was on this. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit builds in a way that we never can. Because you could all come and tell me your names and you could come and tell me your giftings and I would forget 99.9% of them. The Holy Spirit has placed you in a perfect place to do a perfect thing that is called just you two. Just you two. So these guys, they might be fantastic leaders. They might know your gifting and be releasing you in your gifting in this area or that area. But the Holy Spirit does it perfectly. The Holy Spirit does it perfectly. And there is an incredible, there's incredible beauty to that. Like that lady said about being family. There's an incredible beauty about it. Like the lumpy bumpiness of just, it's just family, isn't it? We've been joined together by the Holy Spirit to build the kingdom of God, to build the wall. Brothers and sisters, Peter says this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Quite a few of you dug around the outside of the patio rather than the inside of it. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. But God chose. Let's stand together, shall we? To build the wall in Jerusalem, God chose Hananiah. To build his holy temple, the church, God uses who he chooses. Remember what Peter said. You come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for people that are in difficulty, that are in pain and distress. And I want to pray for people, I want to pray that you would know the call of God in your church as part of the wall. Hold out our hands if you like. Yeah, Father God, I thank you that you know each person in this room. I thank you that you have called each person for eternal significance in you. I thank you, Lord, that you know each person's pain, that you know each person's distress, that you know each person's weakness, and you are a God of love, and you are a good Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet those people right now in your name, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence.
And Lord, I just pray. I pray that each person here would know what you've called them to, Lord. That they would know and dedicate their lives to things of eternal significance. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you touch each heart. Yeah, Lord, I pray you'd talk to some of us. I'll pray that you, oh, and I pray that you would just inspire others of us to be Jediahs, to just sort the wall in front of us. I pray for eternal, eternal perspective to be a mark of this church and a mark of every man, woman, and child in this room. I pray that we would point to Jesus again and again and again in the way that we live our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful church and I pray your blessing on her. Amen. Don't move. Don't move.